please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. Sometimes because I forget the nature of the gospel, I forget just how exciting the gospel is. I've often said that the gospel is not merely for salvation only, but for sanctification. That it's not merely a tool by which God saves people, but also a tool by which God makes people holy. Backed by the holiness of God, the gospel reveals the depravity of humanity. Backed by the wisdom of God, the gospel reveals truth and releases that truth of God to counteract depravity. And backed by the power of God, the gospel reconstructs a person to overcome depravity. The gospel is the Lord's means to take people stuck down here in the swamps of human sin and and to wipe all that mud and muck away in order to take them up there so that they can live in the presence of Christ's glory. This morning our text takes us to the priority of proclaiming the gospel. And I want, to, I want us to learn, really, four characteristics relevant to a ministry of evangelism in a message that I've titled The Believer's Testimony of Proclamation. So if you've not done so, I do ask and invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians 4. And please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, here, how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell of you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. (laughs) 
German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk writes the story of humans who are in search of a immune system bubbles. These immune system bubbles are not a reference to physical immunity. In a post-COVID world, we hear something like that, and immediately we think of those who have cut off physical contact in order to preserve their health, to bolster that physical immunity, and to really keep from getting sick. <coughs> but that's not what he meant. What he meant by these immunity bubbles was that he, people want to keep from getting sick emotionally or spiritually or even phys, uh, mentally. And so they build these bubbles around themselves. He would say that in a harsh world, people seek to create bubbles that will insulate themselves from that harshness so that they would be immune from it. In other words, they want to feel safe and secure. Solodajic would view history, human history, in this way, that it is a stream of successive cycles of people creating their own bubbles to become immune from the world's influence. I don't know if I agree with this ideology on a full scale, but neither do I reject it outright. I do accept that it would be completely inaccurate, I would say, to reject it outright. Because there are evidences of this in our own modern culture. Journalist Justin Bailey, writing for Christianity Today, just two weeks ago, asks, what do we do when it dawns on us that other people are allergic to the very things we hold most dear? I would take that further and say, what if it dawns on us that we were allergic to the very things that others hold most dear? We live in a world that now creates spaces in which only certain speech is acceptable. And anything not in line with that speech is no longer tolerated. We live in a world of cancel culture in which people are canceled if their views are not in line, not with the majority, but with those who control the narrative. It's not just our culture, though, that does this. We see such behavior exercised on an even individual level. Whether online virtually or, or life socially, we live in an era where if somebody doesn't agree or if there's the slightest disagreement, a person is silenced. They are removed from the discourse by a click of a button. And that hides that person's opinions from views so it doesn't have to be interacted. Or worse, they're unfriended. Sometimes physically, but again, even virtually. The goal of this endeavor is to create that bubble. That bubble in which everyone around that person has the same thoughts, the same opinions, and the same beliefs. And then at the same time to expel anyone who doesn't align with that. And so then life becomes this endeavor of isolationism. Isolating out any person, idea, or belief that doesn't fit with their own. There have been periods in history where this is how Christians have even acted, creating their own immunity bubble. In 1946 and 1947, on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, there's a story of an individual searching for a lost sheep. And at that time, he stumbled upon these clay pots well hidden in the back of a cave. Those pots contained nothing than, other than what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. These scrolls are crucial to proving both the history and the accuracy of the Bible. But they were produced by an 
a mystic sect of Jews called the Essenes. This group inhabited an area now known as Qumran, where they isolated themselves from the world. They let no person in or out. From the time of that Hasmonean leader, John Hyrcanus, in roughly 134 BC, all the way until the Jewish-Roman War, the first one, ended in roughly 73 AD, they inhabited that site of Qumran. And they devoted themselves to copying the text and studying the text of the Jewish scriptures. So fearful of the world's influence, this particular group hid themselves away from the world. Rather than isolating the world, they isolated themselves. There are still some that do this today, and I have to confess, I get it. Sometimes my daily goal is just to make it the next 20 years so I can go hide myself in the forest and not surround myself with people. But such behavior is contrary to the Christian call. With the Great Commission, the call of Christ does not call his followers to isolation, but to insertion. He calls upon them, upon his believers, to insert themselves into the world. And please understand what I don't mean by this. We need to understand two things. First, we insert ourselves in the world to influence the world, not be influenced by the world. It's not a call for us to adopt the ways of the world so that we might be able to have an opportunity. It is a call to simply live with the everyday sinner in everyday life so that we may have the opportunity to influence them with the gospel much in the same way that most of us were influenced by the gospel. Second, I also don't mean that we place ourselves in areas of influence. I don't mean that we go seek out these leadership roles or political positions or something that will put us in the forefront. Indeed, the Lord may sometimes provide opportunities for people for those positions. And we should see that exactly as an opportunity for the Lord and use it as such. But if we seek those roles primarily as a means to say, I'm going to get in this position so I can change humanity and, and implement godly behavior, we have a misplaced trust. Because genuine godly behavior doesn't come by creating rules and regulations. It comes by the gospel. And so instead, by insertion, we mean that we live our Christian lives amongst the unsaved, using those everyday opportunities to influence the world around us with that gospel message. That is to say that while people are creating their immunity bubbles to ward off the disease of different belief, Christians must live amongst those people. To borrow a, a metaphor from C.S. Lewis, we must live amongst those people to infect them with a good infection of Christ. As Christians, we don't need to surround ourselves only with people who think like us or act like us or believe like us. I would say, by and large, we spend the majority of our time with those people, absolutely. But if we are strong in the Lord's truth, then our theology is actually the insulator against the world. Our theology tells us that when a person mistreats us down here, we can deal with it because we have a residence up there. Our theology tells us that when a person disagrees with us over there, that's okay, because we have a book that teaches the truth over here. Our theology tells us that when a person rejects us for what we believe, that is okay, 
because we have a Savior who also accepts us because of what we believe. By that I mean we believe in the sufficiency of his death, burial, and resurrection. So while the world isolates itself from one another in order to ward off the infection of truth so that it can hold to its false beliefs, Christians do the opposite. We don't isolate, but we insert ourselves into the world around us. The testimony of a believer is to be a testimony of proclamation. It would appear that the Colossians have been doing the opposite. Based on other texts, most commentators understand that these Colossian believers have been influenced by the false teachers, as we've talked about. Those false teachers that supposedly have this higher knowledge, a higher knowledge that they now say is available only to an exclusive group of people. And now, supposedly, the the Colossians have access to that. But it means removing themselves from contact with others. Paul has spent his letter teaching the Colossian believers that they already have access to the greatest knowledge of all, the knowledge of Christ. He outlines the knowledge in chapters 1 and chapters 2. And then in chapters 3 and chapters 4, he explains how that knowledge is lived out how it impacts the Colossians' relationships with others, with God, with their family, with their fellow believers, and even with unbelievers. And then we come to this prayer request from Paul, which sets himself against all those false teachers by showing the Colossians don't need to withdraw from others, but actually have contact with others. That is not to live a life of isolation, but to live a life of insertion. If believers are going to evangelize an unbelieving world, there are some principles, though, that we need to understand. Principles that will guard us, guard the believers, from being influenced by the world and instead allow us to influence the world. And we see that in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4 of Colossians. I want you to note first that a ministry of evangelism is prayer initiated a ministry of evangelism is prayer initiated after instructing the colossians in in verse 2 devote yourselves to prayer the apostle paul himself then requests prayer himself for himself and for his co-laborers actually saying writing at the same time pray for us that specific request is for opportunities for evangelism I would say that the advancement of the gospel is dependent upon the advancement of prayer. Maybe it's better said that a church's ministry of evangelism is dependent upon the church's ministry of prayer. I'm not going to develop the idea of why prayer makes a difference because we already talked about that and established that in verse 2 when Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. If you want more, you can go back and listen to that message online. I am convinced that a lack of gospel proclamation is often the result of lack of prayer devotion. Every historical movement of large-scale revival and gospel proclamation was preceded by a movement of prayer. In 1708, the Teshin Revival, which is credited for influencing a new era of gospel proclamation both in England and New England, through John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, was initiated by an effort of corporate public prayer. 
The Businessman's Revival of 1857, which came about at a time of deep depression, the greatest depression, economic depression, that this country has ever known up until the 1900s. It is estimated that during that time, by this businessman's revival, one million people came to Christ. But again, it began and spread as a campaign of prayer when a group of businessmen agreed to meet once a week during their lunch hour and simply pray. The book of Acts offers multiple testimonies of the multitudes of people who turned to God through Christ. But what precedes those events in the book of Acts? Most obviously, the very first event we know is it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because that transformed ministry. We see how that transformed the ministry of the apostles. But what does it also say in Acts 2? It says they devoted themselves to prayer which ultimately is an expression of their reliance upon the very Holy Spirit who just came. So not only does this commitment to pray come in verse 42, and it comes immediately following a large-scale conversion, but it also precedes every opportunity of sharing the gospel thereafter in the book of Acts. It is the one way in which these people can fulfill their call to pray at all times, by praying for open opportunities. Of all people, Paul is not the person we expect to receive a prayer request from. Yet he's the one who actually consistently asks for prayer throughout his epistles. As often as he expressed his ongoing prayer for others, he requests prayer from others as well. Adding curiosity to his request was the subject here in Colossians 4.3 because he asked for sharing the gospel. He asked for help in sharing the gospel. The New Testament offers testimony after testimony of Paul's boldness and Paul's faithfulness and Paul's success. Without concern for his life, Paul preached in places like Antioch. Without concern for rejection, Paul boldly declares the Lord's truth in Athens. And without fear of his reputation, Paul engages in debate in the hall of Tyrannus. The Lord has called Paul, the Lord has commissioned Paul, and the Lord has completed Paul, prepared him for ministry. And so time and time again, as Paul proves his faithfulness by engaging in the Lord's work, the Lord proves his faithfulness to Paul by equipping him for that work. And so it would seem of all people to request prayer for sharing the gospel, Paul doesn't need it. So why then does he feel compelled to pray? I think we find the answers in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at what it says in verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us again. You must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Notice first that prayer is a means to thank God for gifting people to do his work. 
but also though he relies on the Lord for this commission, it's clear that Paul doesn't take this commission or his gifting for granted. And so we notice here that Paul's proclamation incited anger. It says he felt that they had received a sentence of death. The people in Asia had turned against him. So his life was in danger because of the anger incited by the message. But by prayer, Paul is still acknowledging the Lord's work. And so what we see is that through prayer, Paul is confirming the Lord's work and is confessing his own dependency upon that work and upon the Lord for that. This is why Paul prays. With this request in Colossians, we begin to understand the priority of prayer and evangelism. Because what does Paul pray for? He prays for opportunities to share the gospel. And then when those opportunities come, he prays that he would be clear and effective. It speaks to the importance and the intentionality that is placed upon the discipline of making disciples. Because notice what Paul doesn't pray for. Doesn't pray for. He, he sits in a jail cell. But he doesn't say, pray for my release. This is incredibly important because Paul's not letting his circumstances dictate his priority. He doesn't make his circumstances conform to his calling. He makes his calling conform to his circumstances. And so rather than say, Lord, please release me, Instead, he's looking to live out his role as a child of God, his call to evangelize in whatever circumstances are at that moment. In this case, it's in prison. Think about what that means for the church's ministry of evangelism. There was a time in U.S. history when people saw a need for church. Even if they didn't believe, they found themselves going. I know a number of people whose testimony is, I got married and then I had a child. And I realized the responsibility, and so I I knew I needed to go to church. And so they ended up at church and got saved. That's not the case anymore. There is no build it and they will come. That was always people's recommendations for us as missionaries overseas. Go get a building and set out a sign and people will come. No, they won't. That's not how they operate. We live in an era in which we now have to go to them. And so like Paul, we don't make our calling dictate the circumstances. We have to take our calling and conform it to the circumstances. And I hope I've made it very clear by that I don't mean we compromise. Second, notice also what else Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for sinners. He prays for the saints. We might expect Paul to say, Lord, save the unsaved. But instead, he prays, Lord, make the saved burdened for the unsaved, in this case, for himself and his co-workers. Our Lord Jesus Christ sets this example himself in Matthew chapter 9. I ask you to turn with me there, Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says that Christ has gone about healing and proclaiming the message. And then verse 36 says, Christ had compassion on the lost. And so moved by that compassion, 
How does Christ respond? Well, verse 37 and 38 tells us this. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Once again, we see this burden for the lost. Christ himself has this burden for the lost. But he doesn't pray for the sinners. He doesn't pray for God to save them. He prays for the saints. He doesn't pray for the unsaved. He prays for the saved. That they would be burdened to go out. That they would go out. Every historical movement of gospel proclamation is preceded by prayer. Not only because it moves people to be saved. But because also it moves the saved to go out and proclaim. It's clear that God uses prayer to remind us and remind his people of their calling to go and make disciples and to do so regardless of the circumstances. I'm convinced when we're praying for something, when we pray that there be opportunities for the gospel, we become more aware of those opportunities ourselves. First, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but second, because it's in our mind, it's weighing on us already. And so we're going to actively look for those. On Wednesday night, we've been discussing the discipline of evangelism which is meant to lead to the church's call to make disciples. Evangelism is not an end in itself, but a beginning of discipleship. Every person who attends has three assignments. The first is that we draw names. In that is every one of your guys' names. And each week, every person there draws a name out and commits to praying for you, if they have your name. Some of those are making it cumulative. So they had one person one week, the next week they draw a number na- another name, and now they're praying for both of them. The second thing we do is I've asked each person to think of somebody they want to share the gospel with, somebody that they will share with by the time we finish our discussion, and then to pray for that person. But finally, they're assigned and asked to pray for our church that we would be a God-glorifying church by being a disciple-making church. Praying not just for the lost then, but praying for the found. I'm convinced that prayer initiates evangelism, but it's not just praying for people to be saved. It's praying for those that need to go out and share. And so the advancement of the gospel is dependent upon one's advancement in prayer. This is because ministry of evangelism is prayer initiated. I want you to note second, that a ministry of evangelism is God-directed. A ministry of evangelism is God-directed. It would say the advancement of the gospel is dependent upon the advancement of the Lord and his work. Paul writes, pray for us. But he doesn't say pray that we would look and create opportunities He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. A survey conducted in 2020 by the Jesus Film Project suggests that the most significant lack of evangelism is a result of general fear. In fact, they say that 25% of people say that just a general fear of things keeps them from sharing the gospel. When you add to that excuses like worry over rejection, concern over being ill-equipped, which are just variations of fear, and that number rises to more than 50% of people 
50% of people who do not share anything about their faith because of fear. But I want you to see that if ministry is God-directed, then that fear melts away. Because a ministry of evangelism is God-directed, it is not man-directed. Therefore, a ministry of evangelism is not defined by man's expectations, but by God's intentions. A ministry of evangelism is not determined by man's rejection, but by God's decision. And a ministry of evangelism is not dependent upon man's willingness, but on God's faithfulness. Because a ministry of evangelism is God-directed, not man-directed. Paul then solicits prayers. And he solicits the Lord's help through those prayers by asking for his fellow believers to pray to God in order to incite God to open up doors and opportunities for Paul. Already this phrase, open door, was well established in the ancient world. It's used in a similar way that we use that phrase today to indicate open access and available opportunities We often refer to circumstances as opened or closed doors. So this language here is is not unfamiliar to us. It's used to convey that in the same way in the New Testament, with one exception. Every time it is used in the New Testament, it is always used to convey the idea of opportunities to propagate the gospel. It's not used generally to refer to any circumstance as an opened or door open or closed door. It's always referred to an open or closed door and an opportunity to share the gospel. In this morning scripture we read from Acts 14. I ask you to go there again with me. Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 offers several stories and evidence of of Paul's work spreading the gospel. We see it in the regions of Iconium and Lystra and Antioch. Beginning in verse 21, it becomes clear that preaching the gospel alone was not Paul's goal only. Paul and Barnabas in this case. The vision that they had for ministry was adopted from their great commission. It was set forth by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was to make disciples. We see this in verse 21, when it says, After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. What they're doing is church planting. They're making disciples, they're equipping leaders, and then... They're putting leadership in place. And then when it is all said and done, after we have all these stories in Acts 14, we come to verse 27, and it says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, after they returned home, they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Once again, the open door here. The open door quantifies what has happened. So that when we read this word, we understand that despite all the opposition that they faced, that we just read about, they advanced forward in the Lord's work. They were given unhindered opportunities to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were unobstructed in their acceptance. 
of the gospel. Look again at that testimony, though, in verse 27. Neither Paul nor Barnabas exclaims that it was their work, but rather they, they point to God as the effective orchestrator of this work. It was God directed. Paul's prayer in Colossians then becomes remarkable because all that he is doing is responding in faith to what God has already done. He speaks of the open door of his ministry in Trous in 2 Corinthians 2.12, saying that when he arrived there, there was an open door for him, opened by the Lord. He also says he didn't stay because he didn't find Titus there, but that's another story. Paul's already seen God at work. He's seen him work everywhere he's gone in ministry. When Paul has gone forth, the Lord has opened up doors for him. So by the time we arrive to here in Colossians, Paul's simply asking his fellow believers to plead with the Lord to do what he's already done over there. Only now he wants the Lord to do it here, where Paul is currently residing, which is in prison, as the text says. He's already seen the Lord at work. He already knows what the Lord is capable of doing. And now he's simply praying that the Lord will once again perform this miracle of salvation by creating opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed. The apostle obviously recognizes something very important here. It is God's sovereignty, not Paul's ability. It is God who opens the door. It is God who creates the opportunity. And it is God who advances the gospel. And so recognizing this, Paul request then is simply that God would open the door. I want you to consider two things about a God-directed ministry of evangelism. If you're not already there, please go back to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and look at verses 1 through 7. They describe Paul and Barnabas' experience at Iconium. And so, reading and beginning of verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that the great numbers of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the world of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. First, we need to realize that a A God-directed ministry of evangelism doesn't mean there is a lack of rejection. Verse 2 says there are unbelieving Jews. These unbelieving Jews were present and clearly didn't become converted because they actually set themselves against the gospel. Verse 4 says the city was divided so that some sided with the apostles, but some sided with the Jews. But wasn't this God-directed? Of course. We know that's the case because in verse 27, they praise the Lord for what he did, for opening the door. So clearly the Lord is orchestrating this. And yet there are some who will still reject. Not only does a 
God-directed ministry of evangelism not imply a lack of rejection, but it also doesn't mean there isn't a lack of opposition. Again, verse 2, those unbelieving Jews that we saw, they stirred up the Gentiles, it says, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. But it gets worse. Verses 5 and 6, it says Paul and Barnabas had to flee because there was a plot to mistreat them and even stone them. And then at Lystra in verse 19, indeed, it says Paul was stoned. Though the Lord was at work, both rejection and opposition were present. This is because as the Lord works, we also know that Satan continues to work as well, trying to deceive or or poison, as our text says, people and try to get them to turn away from the Lord. Though a God-directed ministry of evangelism doesn't mean there's a lack of rejection or a, a lack of opposition, it does give us something else. It gives us confidence and assurance. Though each of us has been called to make disciples, beginning first by declaring the gospel, it's not our work. It's the Lord's work. It's done under, the God's, under God's authority. It's done under God's direction. And it's done under God's achievement. As we look upon the work of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, it's, it's easy to be horrified at how they were treated. Indeed, it says Paul was left for dead. And yet when it's all said and done, the, they praise the Lord because his work was both effective and exhaustive. The Lord worked and he did so completely according to his will. will. We're told that Crowds of people in multiple cities believed. They turned from their sin. They renounced their former ways and instead committed themselves to God through Christ. This is a praiseworthy event, and it all happened because the Lord opened the door. So now think of this. The God who achieved that work way back in the New Testament is the same God who is at work today. The God who reigned over the event of then is the same God who reigns over the events of today. The God who brought the multitudes to himself back then is the same God who is still capable of bringing multitudes to himself today. If this is the Lord's work, we labor in the gospel Not because it is dependent upon what we do, but because it is dependent upon what God does. We're not burdened by performance, we're not burdened by results, and we're not burdened with the effect. A ministry of evangelism is wholly, completely, fully dependent upon the Lord. It is his work, and he has proven himself faithful to complete this work through individuals who are faithful to obey their call. Do you see what this means then? Evangelism becomes an expression of our trust in the Lord. When we evangelize, we are saying, Lord, I want to be faithful to your call because I trust that you will work as you please. Not as I please, but as you please. A confidence on that level, a trust in the Lord to this degree should overcome all excuses of fear. By not evangelizing, half of the professing believers are saying they don't trust the Lord. That 50% I talked about earlier. But if we trust the Lord, 
We don't fear being ill-equipped because we trust that the Lord will prepare us for every encounter. And he will do so precisely according to what he wants to accomplish. And it may not be what he wants to accomplish in the person we're evangelizing to. It may be what he wants to accomplish in us. If we trust the Lord, we don't fear our reputation. Indeed, people may think less of us. But if this is the Lord's work, then they're really thinking less of God. And if we trust in the Lord, we don't fear rejection. Because ultimately, their acceptance or their rejection isn't of us, it's of God. We could go on and on, and I I won't. Instead, what I want you to simply see is that evangelism is God-directed. And if it is God-directed, then that fear dissipates. That fear disappears because we're not trusting in another person's reaction. We're trusting in God's action. And so a ministry of evangelism is God-directed. And because it is God-directed, we can engage in it confidently. And, And we'll see more of that, I guess, next week. The call of the believer is to not live in isolation. It's to live insertion, inserting ourselves into the world to influence the world. Each of us enters the world so that there's an opportunity to make disciples and to live out the Great Commission. But every believer does so backed by prayer and backed by God because a ministry of evangelism is always prayer-initiated and God-directed. The Great Commission is not an endeavor that we do on our own. It's something that God undertakes and then we join him. And so we insert ourselves into an unbelieving world. What does that look like? Actually, the Great Commission gives us the answer. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it tells us to go and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's only one verb in that sentence. The only command there is to make disciples. Again, how is that done? Well, we, we see it. It's found in that word go. Literally, that should read, as you are going. Meaning, as you are going about things, go make disciples. So in other words, as you're going about your routine life, you make disciples. In our era, that means as we're going to work, as we're shopping, as we're having coffee, we make disciples. To make disciples, though, you must first share the gospel. Allow me to to share a little bit about what this looks like in my own life recently. And I, I apologize because it's going to sound very prideful. I don't mean it to be such. I struggle with evangelism just as much as anybody. Um, but this recently, just Friday night, I had an opportunity to attend an event in Portland. And it's something I'd been looking forward to. And, and the plan was for Bethany to go with me. And then as she got sick, coming down with what we'd all been getting, finally, she said, I can't go. And she she hasn't been able to go anywhere. And so we were talking about it. And she goes, I really wish I could go with you. And I told her, I said, I kind of wish you would too, or or were able to. Because in one sense, I'm looking forward to this event. I've been looking forward to it for months. In another sense, I'm not. Because I knew what I was entering into. These are people who are very different, very awkward, That's why I'm sure I got to be part of it. I'm just as odd. But most of these people hold beliefs 
at the extreme opposite of what I hold to, because most of them are, are very much anti-Christian, anti-Bible. Um, they're not violent or, or combative. They just, they're against those views. And so in that regard, I, I kind of wanted somebody there with me. <clears throat> and I wasn't looking forward to it. The, the end result is on my way there, I ended up in prayer. Lord, please make this event go well. Allow me some opportunities to converse. What you need to know, and this sounds odd, when I accepted this position and started here, I had a pen commissioned because I like my pens. And that means nothing in the sense that it, it's just a little tool. But I enjoy it. I designed the pen. I came up with ideas for it and had somebody make it. It arrived this week, just, just Thursday. Do the math. That tells you it took almost two years to make this pen. This pen at this event can capture attention because it's unique. Not only did I design it, I had a certain nib put on it that's very different most people have never experienced, which means I got to pull this pen out. Why does that matter at this event? Because rather than have a clip on the pen, I had a roll stop put on, and the roll stop was cast in a, a silver metal, and it's a Bible. It's got a cross on one side and a crown of thorns. And so as I was talking about this pen and somebody wanted to see it, I had handed it to this lady who had just spent all this time talking about her life, which was very much, again, against everything I stand for in Scripture. And she saw the Bible on there. And it gave me an opportunity to share what I believe and why I believe. I didn't necessarily have to go into, here's I don't believe in your lifestyle. I didn't start there. I may have said, yeah, I disagree with this, but I take that all the way back to the gospel. And I start there. I disagree with this, but it goes all the way back to here. Here's what we see. And so with that came an opportunity. I wasn't doing anything special. I didn't go stand on a street corner with a big sign trying to preach Christ. I was living my everyday life. I was taking part in an event that I had planned to take part of anyway. And the Lord simply opened the door. This is what it means. We don't isolate ourselves. We insert ourselves. We take our everyday circumstances and use them as gospel opportunities. And so my prayer is that we would be a people who says, from Psalm 71, 15, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father God, we come here this morning because we have been recipients of your grace. It was imparted to us through the message of the gospel, Lord, when we began to understand that indeed we were sinners in need of your grace and forgiveness that we were in need of your son's sacrifice to overcome that sin, Lord. And so, Father, what a glorious thing that indeed we can come here and, and praise you for that and give thanks, Lord. Father, as much as that has changed our lives, Lord, I pray that influences us then to impact others. With the same message you used to transform us, Lord, may we proclaim it to others, desiring to see your miracle of salvation impact those that we come in contact with, Lord. 
I pray in doing so that we would rely not upon our ability, but on you, Lord. May we look for those opportunities. May we seek them out. May we first direct our prayers to you to provide those opportunities, Lord. And Father, we know indeed you're faithful to complete a work according to your will. And so may we trust in the outcome of those opportunities, Lord. We thank you that we can look upon Paul's prayer to you, Lord, and use it as a model for our own prayer, Lord. And so, Lord, I do pray, please open up opportunities, open up doors of opportunities for your truth to go out. (coughs) We thank you for the work you are doing, the work you're going to do, and look forward with anticipation of, of what you're going to do. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.